Good evening. Welcome to the LSE. My name is Richard Hilton, and I'm the arts coordinator here. Um, before I hand you over, um, I just want to introduce um, this evening's event. Um, thank you for coming. And um, this evening's event will um, involve Paul Gilroy introducing Emery Douglas, and Emery will then give a talk on his work which will last in the region of about 40 minutes. Um, there will be opportunities um, after that to ask questions. So I'm very pleased to welcome um, Emery Douglas to LSE, and I'm um, equally pleased to um, that Paul Gilroy, who's the um, professor here, Anthony Giddens Professor in Social Theory, has agreed to introduce and to chair this event. So I'll hand you over to Paul Gilroy. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Richard. It's a real honour and a pleasure for me to have the chance to uh, introduce uh, Emery Douglas this evening, um, uh, a moment when uh, our attention has been turned very much uh, towards the United States of America um, and to the prospect of the United States of America rejoining the rest of the world, if not to the idea of the imminent end of racism in the Western world. So, I do hope you're all looking forward to that as much as me. Um, but it is a perfect moment for us to benefit from a presentation uh, by Emery of his luminous and inspiring work. Emery, a, a veteran activist, an artist whose record of achievement is unique, I think, uh, and inspiring, precisely because it admits no discontinuity between the world of creativity and the world of revolutionary politics. Um, it is uh, art and culture, Emery demonstrates, which make those revolutionary movements for social and political change actually start to move. Um, Emery was born in Michigan in uh, 1943. I know that there was a brief period of teenage incarceration, uh, um, a period which, um, as we learn with so many of our own young people at the moment, is, is, is an opportunity to engage and to encounter a different variety of pedagogy than is routinely treated in institutions of this, but no, uh, such as this, but no less valuable for that. I know that you worked in the prison printing shop, I understand, and, uh, and then later on went on to study uh, commercial arts at City College in San Francisco. Um, obviously, uh, Emery was politically involved as a revolutionary artist, and then, of course, as the Minister of Culture in the Black Panther Party in Oakland, um, from uh, the late 60s through right the way through up uh, uh, into the early 1980s. And I think that involvement in the Black Panther Party uh, from its early days in California um, uh, was uh, what um, uh, eventually uh, brought uh, Emery into the role of Minister of Culture. I think in that role, um, certainly, um, he's, well, I, I mean, I, I don't want to embarrass him, but I, let me say that I feel that Emery is largely responsible for developing the distinctive visual culture and the distinctive iconographic signatures of the Black Power movement worldwide. And certainly, um, that was something that reached out and touched the lives of uh, large numbers of young people like myself during that time who were remote from the United States geographically, but who were, during that period, strongly influenced by ideas of resistance, ideas of liberation, and ideas of pride that were the stock in trade of the Panthers at that time. <coughs> I, mean, I knew some of the posters, I knew some of the, we would occasionally see uh, the newspaper 
Um, but uh, I, I always imagined that there were many people. <laughs> I always imagined that the work, the visual culture of that moment was the, the product of an enormous team. So it was a great surprise and a delight for me when uh, my dear friend, the late St. Clair Bourne, who I want to remember this evening in the traditional manner, um, gave me a book of your work, uh, Emery, and... Uh, uh, and, uh, and I was entranced, and three profound things struck me about it, and I want to mention them now as a way of uh, laying some groundwork for our discussion later on after your presentation, if I, if, if I may. First of all, I think there's the question of revolution itself, and I know that we're not allowed to use, it's one of the words we don't use, right? We don't, uh, we're not allowed to think with the idea of revolution anymore. After the walls came down, after official Soviet-style communism was laid to rest, uh, the idea of revolution became an eminently disreputable preoccupation. So the first thing I want to suggest is that we return to thinking about the idea of revolution as, um, as a way of contemplating alternatives to this broken world we inhabit. And I think that that imaginative proximity to the idea of revolution is something that um, is part of uh, <coughs> Emery's uh, contribution here and which... Um, I suppose, you know, it seems to me to have, have, have fostered an extraordinary creativity. Just the nearness between that creativity or the place of that creativity and the idea of revolution. I think that's a, that's a feature we know from earlier modernist movements in other parts of the world, but it's certainly something which is alive in this legacy. Uh, and, and I think it relates to my second point, which is how you were the Minister of Culture, right? I think that these revolutionary movements of the late 20th century, the ones that tried to adapt the anti-Nazi morality of the post-1945 world to the goal of national revolution, uh, were, and this is true, I think, in the US, because people were reading Fanon, they were reading Cabral, they were reading the theorists of the decolonizing world and adapting those ideas to the circumstances of the overdeveloped countries, the overdeveloped spaces of the most advanced uh, nation on earth at that time. And I, and I think that how the question of culture then reappears in the practice of those revolutionary movements is a decisive question. And I think I want to ask you whether you imagine that revolutionaries ask or are inclined to ask better questions about culture than other um, kinds of, of political activists and actors. I think there's a link between the intensity of that concept of culture and the way it's rendered and the practice of revolutionary politics as distinctive. And lastly, when, I, when I, I sat down to think about what I would say this evening and to, uh, and to uh, be able to introduce uh, Emery properly, I really I sat down and thought about other artists whose practice might have informed his own. And the, the only person I could really think of whose um, energy and political vision and consistency and, and creativity was something that was, uh, reminded me of your own extraordinary contribution was John Hartfield. John Hartfield, the um, uh, 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 practitioner, uh, is remembered, I suppose, mostly for his, his montages during the Nazi period. And, um, and I wanted really, I wanted to, to emphasize the Hartfield connection and to say that uh, you did all this extraordinary work. You know, we look at the images and the practice and we look at the collages and the montages and the drawings and we look at them uh, from the kind of vantage point of a digital culture. We imagine that somehow uh, the world of technology we inhabit and take for granted is something that might be read retrospectively back into that practice. 
And of course, nothing could be further from the truth. I don't know what point you encountered a photocopy machine, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm sure, you know, the, the, the gestet nervous state, the, the um, you know, the um, um, mimeographic reproduction, all of these things are part of a world of, of technology which makes certain varieties of creativity and artistic practice possible for you. And I, and I really want to just remind and underline that for everybody, that there's a very pre, a very analog world uh, of, of cultural production here that, 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 that is something we have to recover as the context in which we can evaluate and enjoy the creativity of Emery Douglas. Uh, so, uh, thank you very much, uh, Emery. I know your work has been recently displayed at the uh, 2008 Biennale in S Sydney, at the Museum of Modern Art in, in, in Los Angeles, at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, the Richmond Art Center, the Station Museum of Contemporary Art, and that you've been appearing in print magazine, in Art in America, and, uh, and in the American Institute of Public Art. So, um, belatedly, uh, but uh, appreciatively, let's welcome you here, and we're all dying to hear what you have to say. Thank you so much. Um, as we were saying in the uh, Black Panther Party, all power to the people. And that's the way I will start off my uh, presentation this evening. Excuse my voice, unfortunately it's uh, a little on the uh, outside this evening. Um, the art is a reflection of the politics of the Black Panther Party. Uh, I became involved with the Black Panther Party about three months into its inception in January 1967. And uh, initially I, was, I was, became the revolutionary artist, as he said, and then the Minister of Culture. I was about, uh, it was, I, I, I began to work on the second edition of the newspaper. I will go through these slides, but I will perhaps talk about some. Others I will just pass up uh, because of the uh, time restraints. In the early days, we used to, uh, the artwork is a reflection in categories also. There were the pig drawings. There were the uh, self-defense drawings. There was the uh, social commentary drawings. And there was those that dealt with uh, solidarity with people's struggles around the world. And initially, we started off defining what a pig was. And this was defined by Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, and Elgis Cleaver. When we used to work on the paper, out of a studio apartment before we be, before we got a, had a headquarters. No. Okay, thank you. <laughs> what is a pig? A low-natured beast that has no regard for law, justice, or the right of people. A creature that bites the hand that feeds it. A foul, depraved traducer, usually found masquerading as the victim of an unprovoked attack. That was how we defined. The pig, and particularly then, it was the police who, in our neighborhoods, were recruited from the, the sources of those that you've seen in the South, who were sicking the water hoses and beating uh, the marchers with the billy clubs, were the same types that were being recruited into the North on the police department. We also talked about community control of the police. They, they were meant to be provocative. They were meant to be not just pretty, but be provocative. This one here is also a take on community control of police, but it's also a take on a young man who was the very first member in the background. His name was Little Bobby Hutton. 
He was 15 years old when he joined the Black Panther Party. Huey Newton and Bobby Seale mentored him. They had to get permission from his parents for him to join the Black Panther Party. He was murdered in Oakland, California, shot 17 times by the Oakland police uh, when he was 17 years old. He was murdered two days after Martin Luther King was assassinated. This one came about when the uh, police came to our doors late one evening after I had been out organizing, doing political work with Kathleen Cleaver and Elgis Cleaver. And they knocked on the door and Elgis asked, who is it? They said it was the San Francisco police. He said, well, do you have a search warrant? They say, no. He said, well, you're going to have to kick the door in. They began, proceeded to kick the door in. And I'm observing what they're doing. They, as, what had happened earlier that day, Kathleen Cleaver had uh, purchased a gun because there had been threats on her life. But her husband was a ex-felon who could not have a gun in his possession. So they kicked in the door and they were saying, what, and they said, what are we looking for? Where are the guns? What they did is three weeks later, they went and did the same thing at Bobby Seale, who was the co-founder of the Black Panther Party. And it was thereafter that we wrote this executive mandate that you see at the bottom. And what this executive mandate basically says is that we will no longer allow the police to come to our doors and kick in our doors without a search warrant. If they, because we remember what took place in the 1930s when the Al Capone gang dressed up like cops and went across town and slaughtered the uh, other gang. So if they have a search warrant and it's legal, we have no problem. But if they've not got a search warrant, then we're not going to let them come into our houses. So thereafter, what happened, they began to, you had these common criminals that they began to, uh, had got cases uh, with charges. They used them to infiltrate the Black Panther Party to begin to become agent provocateurs within the party. And we began to have shootouts all across the country because they began to put these plants in the party to create conditions because of what we had said we would not allow to do that was illegal. From that, I wrote this po uh, from that, a young man wrote this poem, and I did the illustration to the poem. It says, knock, knock, who's there? The pigs. You got a warrant? Don't need one. I'm coming in. Bang, bang, oink, oink, off the pigs. This was a takeoff of the attitude of the uh, police when they come in our community. They don't want to be there anyway because they didn't live in our community. They were predominantly white, racist police department, and they didn't want to be there. And the whole attitude when they came in, it was just niggas, 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 niggas. And so I was taking this old thing, what they used to do in the South, when black folks used to pull a lie, and, on, and when they got into fighting something, they pull a lie and ask on each other. Well, I tried to use that, and uh, she'll say, by any means necessary, unless you got something else. And so she's fixing to lie them up. This says seize the time. This was in, the, this was in relationship to uh, when they began to form these special squads called tax squads. These are big goon squads, in, in the, uh, and they had the right, in the police department, they had the right to come around and they could stop you, they could frisk you down, they didn't, for no apparent reason. They were big, burly guys. They looked like they were on steroids. And so there was a big outcry around this whole Concern, And over a period of time, what they did is they integrated it into the police department as opposed to disbanding it. Here again is one that's dealing with the rebellions that were taking place in the neighborhoods during that particular time. 
All across the countries in the United States, you had riots and rebellions going on because young black men being shot in the back, running from the scene of a petty crime, no gun found, and, and it was being justified. The high levels of frustration began to boil over, and you had many riots and many rebellions in the United States during that particular time. And this is a take on the psychological impact of how we felt. I surrendered. There's no escape for the invader. Better hand in my gun. Oink, oink, oink. Here's one that was at the same time that you had these, uh, these rebellions going on, you had the war in Vietnam. So you had the war in Vietnam, you had these battles going on in, 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 the, in, the, in the neighborhoods. And as you see, I spell America with three K's, KKK, Klu Klux Klan. Uh, it says it's hell inside, it's hell outside, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Get out of the ghetto, get out of Latin America, get out of Asia, get out of Africa, U.S. imperialism. Here's our, t here's our take on young, young uh, African people, young men who are being sent into the military service to fight a war of, against the people who have never abused them. And so what it is, they wound up and being controlled by the U.S. imperialists, but once they realize what's going on, they turn around and go against U.S. imperialism. You had many ex former Black Panther Party members who were in the military, who came into the Black Panther Party. Here's one that's dealing with Israel, the Zionist puppet state of Israel and U.S. imperialism. Zionists and U.S. imperialism, world domination. That's what it's about, world domination. And so this here shows this. Matter of fact, we had human movement went to the Middle East at one point and went to uh, Palestine, and he, we had supporters and Panthers in Israel, but they wouldn't allow him to come into Israel. Whatever's good for the oppressor has got to be bad for us. And here he says, hey, handle those slaves with care. We're going to need them for Mars, Pluto, and all those other planets. And you got the slaves saying, I knew we should have stopped this shit before it got off the ground. And you got the slave mother saying, okay, goddammit, don't take two, 400 years this time. So this was a takeoff on the times when they uh, were going up into space. But at the same time, uh, there were other things that were being discussed around space. Because in the late 1990s, I heard a, uh, a, a news commentator talking to this gentleman from the Hoover Institute at Stanford. And they got in a discussion about space. And they said that they had a program that they had put in place where they were trying to develop uh, how to house prisoners in space and on barges in the ocean. Because the year, by the year 2025, that the population of the prison industrial complex would be so great that they wouldn't have any place to house them. This is white flight at last, white only, during the space shuttle during that time. But also another thing about the space program, I mean, people, that's a great experience. That's an amazing thing. But what happens when it launches off? All the pollution that it leaves behind, that we never discussed that in conjunction with the, the, uh, 
the the uh, the, the, the uh, toxins that's in the air, or all the other things that impact that it has on our lives, on paper, on our immune systems, or what have you. That never becomes a part of the discussion. Black misery, ain't we got a right to the tree of life? It is my belief that we black people need gas and electricity on cold and dark days, doctors and medicine in, in times of sickness, breakfast, lunch, and dinner in times of hunger. As you see in the background, I have a picture showing uh, of young people eating breakfast. The Black Panther Party had a breakfast for children program all across the country. You had a you had a, a, a representative of the state legislature in California said that the Black Panther Party was feeding more hungry children than the United States government. That was true. Freedom. But I have no money for sale. Save the children. When I spend more time fighting the rats than taking care of my children, you know it makes me realize that I have a right to kill the greedy slumlords who force me to live in these inhuman conditions. Now this sister had a little politics because she got the Hugh Newton behind her, she got the pig drawers behind her, she got the free Bobby Seale, free Erica Huggins, and My mama told me that there are some people who are really servants of the people. And this was also related to, as over the young lady's head in the background artwork, it says, Berkeley, California, April 6, 1971, vote yes for community control of police. There was the debate and discussion about community control of police after little Bobby Hutton, which had been murdered on April, April uh, 6, and, and uh, uh, a few years prior to that. My suffering, my bitterness, my loneliness, I'm not going to let it get me down. I'm not going to let it turn me around. Perhaps this young man has somebody who was incarcerated. When will I smile when there is no more hunger? Vote for survival. When we talked about politics, we say politics started with unemployment. Politics started with inferior education. Politics started with indecent housing. Politics starts with uh, uh, black men being sent to wars to fight wars of aggression. We say that these are the things that we be, should be discussing when you talk about politics. These were the things that we brought to the table during that time when you talked about politics. All power to the people. These are some of the survival programs of the Black Panther Party. We had medical clinics. We had a brand new ambulance service in Winston-Salem where we had the Black Panther Party on the side of it. We, we had medical clinics all over the country. We had mobile vans that were in, 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 in uh, back east in, in Boston and in New York who used to do outreach in the community, do sickle cell anemia testing, do other kinds of testing. We had doctors and nurses and we had students who were going to medical school who used to come and volunteer for that program. We had the breakfast program. We had the free blessing to prison program. They bled your mama, they bled your papa, but he won't bleed me. 
That was taken from a movie called Sweet Sweet Back. It was one of the first black movies made by Maryland Van Peoples. We shall we shall survive without a doubt. And these are young people who in this foreground who grew up in the Panther School. We had a school that went from preschool up to the ninth grade. It was a credited school. We had people like Maya Angelou who used to come and read poetry to the kids. We had uh, we had uh, people like Oscar Brown Jr. I don't know if you know of him. Richard Pryor, you may know of him. Rosa Parks came and stayed with us two weeks and visited our school. We had liberation schools all over the country. Hallelujah, the might and the power of the people is beginning to show. I, this was done in, at, when there was a victory. As you see on this button, that was Bobby Seale and Erica Huggins, two uh, party members, leading members of the party, who were on trial for uh, were charged with murder of killing another comrade, which was done by a police provocative, who, a provocateur who infiltrated the party and eventually was found guilty of those crimes and they were released. I just want to testify. I'm not going to sit around any longer. I got freedom on my mind. We're going to keep on struggling for about a day. We're going to keep on struggling until we win your love. This was about a boycott of a black liquor store owner who was trying to get a distributor's license and they were protesting at this chain store. And Ewan Newton was riding, driving around in the community and he seen these guys and he knew them. And he said that we will come in and help you with this boycott if you make a donation to the survival programs. They agreed. We came in, we made the people seeing who was, the Black Panther Party was involved with the boycott, they stopped going into the store. Only those who stopped going into the store were those who were disabled, elder, sick, couldn't go anywhere else. So we said, how are we going to deal with that situation? We went back to our, and, just, and decided that we would bring all of our cars and all of our vans, and we would offer them a ride to anywhere they wanted to go, and we would bring them back to that location. They agreed to that. After that, we closed the store down in, in about four days. But then Bill Boyer said, well, I'm not going to donate to you. We said, okay, we're going to boycott you. <laughs> and so that's what we did. And as you see in this banjo, that was when we had to boycott. And initially, people couldn't understand why we were boycotting another black business. But when we explained the circumstances of what took place, you had them, they, then they began to look, join the picket line. The only way he stayed in business for six months is that he was bankrolled by the White Chamber of Commerce of Oakland, because there were no black people in it, and the owner of the daily paper, the Oakland Tribune. And as we went along, we did, I used some drawings that I had used other before, and I put Boyette still refused to donate to the community survival program. And as we went along, as you see, we were out in the front of the we was out in front of the store from 6 in the morning to 2 a.m. because it was a liquor store and they opened at 6 o'clock and they closed at 2 o'clock. And it says, don't support the greedy, support the needy. That was William Nolan and that was Bill Boyette on the right. And it says, Bill Boyette, blood bank, where particular people congregate. Since July 31st, 1971, Bill Boyette has refused to donate to the community free survival programs. 
I'm going out Nolan style because I'm a greedy, greedy man. And here you have the bag with the Nolan's picture on it. And this was a Halloween. Boyette would rather be tricked by Nolan than to treat the people to a piece of bread. Bowed by Nolan, sold by Boyette. 100% proof blood. But what eventually happened, you had a local representative who became a well-known congressman named Ron Dellums, who came in and negotiated the settlement of the boycott. But in the process, we said, well, he doesn't have to donate to us. He can donate to the Urban League. He can donate to the NAACP. But the deal was that he had to make a donation because that was the deal. So eventually it was settled. And after it was settled, I did a cartoon that showed a sister with a bag of groceries, which is not in here but in the book. And it showed him, and on the bag it says, Brother Bill Boyette supports the Community Survivor Programs, so support Bill, Brother Bill Boyette. So it wasn't nothing personal. It was about the, 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 the agreement that we had made. Here's one that deals with uh, Organization of Solidarity, Africa, Latin America, and Asia. This is one from Ospal, they call it, and that's out of Cuba. And these were two images that I had done that they remixed and recreated during that period. And they used to take a, a lot of my images from time to time because they would just to do all these wonderful political posters, and they sent them all over the world. But they never would put my name on it. But so what you had is you had young people who used to go to Cuba during the summer to help work in the sugar cane, the chapter sugar cane, that helped the Cubans out. And they would go over there and they would see these posters. And they would come back and say, you didn't do that work. The Cubans did that work. And they would always say that. But eventually they found out that I did do it because it was a, a guy named Cushing who did a book who he himself thought I, uh, the Cubans had done the work. And he was doing the work on the relationship of the Cuban art to the American artists. And he's seen a lot of the work over, the original work over there with my name on it. As you see, this is the one of the earlier versions of the last piece you seen was mixed with that one. I I, I can't choose the, the writings is too small, so I want to try to read it. I'm African American solidarity with oppressed people of the world. This is one of the first color images I did. I did this in 1967. I took it to and showed it to uh, Elders Cleaver. And uh, he wanted to uh, request that if we could use it as a part of the fundraiser to raise funds for the Black Panther Party. Here, this is again one of the images I did that the uh, Cubans used again. And it says solidarity with the African American people, August 18, 1968. And they did it in four languages and they sent it all around the world. Here's one showing the, uh, what war. The war, the, psych the psychology of war, the, psych the, the impact of war, and what it does to the human psyche and to human beings in general. It's, I got the button that says U.S. government approved. Richard Nixon and Richard Agnew. Richard Nixon was the president who had to leave office in disgrace. He was impeached. His vice president, Agnew, had to leave office in disgrace. He was a criminal. These were criminals running the government. Here you have 
Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger was is one of the war crimes because Henry Kissinger, Henry Kissinger was behind Pinochet and Chile not being prosecuted for human rights violations. He's, he, don't leave, he doesn't go anywhere in the world unless he checks to make sure that he's not going to be subpoenaed to ask questions about human rights violations that took place in Chile, that took place during the Vietnam War in Laos and Cambodia when people were slaughtered and murdered during that time. This was the, we had a lot of young men who refused to go to war. They said, I'm just, when I did this illustration, it's basically, I'm just not going. Peace with honor. I'm just not going. Here again was a takeoff on Tricky Dick, that was you call Tricky Dick Nixon, and Agnew and the, the police. And this was a Halloween, trick or treat pigs, trick or treat. King Nixon, he wanted to be in office forever. He didn't never want to leave office. Corporate profit, defense spending, subsidized runaway shop, speed up, hmm? consumer buying power. That sounds like right now. I, Gerald Ford, am the 38th puppet of the United States. Corporate, corporate interest runs America. The President of the United States is a, just a puppet. Now, I hope Obama can change, transform that, but that was the reality then. This was during the time when they began to, uh, COINTELPRO came about, counterintelligence program. They began to, uh, how we found out about it was you had these radicals who broke into this office and they got these records and these records showed that the U.S. government was spying on the American people. <coughs> we began to publish a lot of that in our newspaper called The Black Panther. And after a while, sometimes we, the things that we said were very, uh, Intensely said. And so I did this illustration to show that uh, what was beginning to happen to us around that. And it was says, uh, indictment, Black Panthers wanted dead for conspiracy of exposing America. And this one says, I wonder if Nixon is bugging us now. Kidnap. This one took place when Bobby Seale uh, was kidnapped. It was one day I came to the office and Comrade was standing in the office door and they said it was something strange because you see that things weren't routinely like they usually be in front of the office on the street. But we left that evening and we went to the filling station about two blocks away to get some gas. It was three carloads of us. Bobby was in one car with Comrades. I'm in another car and there was another car. All of a sudden out of nowhere you had the Fed, F federal government agents Swarm come down on us with their machine guns. They snatched Bobby Seal out the car. They put him in his car. They drive off. We have one of the cars follow him. At the same time, we got in touch with our lawyers. We found out that they took him to the federal building in San Francisco. Then they took him back to Chicago to stand trial because of the uh, Chicago Con uh, Democratic Convention where they had all this activity that went on, and they were being charged with all these ri ridiculous charges that uh, they were charged with. 
So now I did this one thereafter inside the paper. It says, hello, Black Panther Party. We will soon make it possible for all of you to be with your chairman, the art of kidnapping by the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And I made him look like a little rat, little wheezy rat. And that's J. Edgar Hoover, which was, he didn't like black people at all, period. Only thing he said was, he said, only thing he, he said during his, his uh, time was that all black people could do was press his clothes and shine his shoes. You had the agents inside the FBI who had to bring a class action suit in order to get uh, get there, get uh, to be able to get a higher position in that organization. This is the one I did when Bobby Seale was took back to Chicago to stand trial, and during the proceedings, uh, the his lawyer got sick and couldn't uh, defend him because he had to have a minor operation, and so he demanded that he have the right to speak for himself. So, but what happened was that. During the proceedings, every time they would mention his name, he said, I object, Your Honor, I object. He wanted, I want to cross-examine this person. And he was bound and gagged in the courtroom. First time in the history, never happened before, a person being bound and gagged in the courtroom. And I came up with this thing that says, that unarmed people are slaves or subject to slavery at any, any given time. Dred Scott, 1857, Bible Seal, 1969. Dred Scott was a black man who th was taken into freedom and thought he was a free man out of slave, slavery. Thought he was a free man. But, found he was, they were, but they were going, he was going. His, I think his master was going to take him back into slavery, and so he petitioned the court. And the court just said that he had no rights; that he had to go back into slavery. So here's the connection: a black man has no right that a white racist system is bound to respect. They both had no rights. This was about the peace movement in Chicago during that time when they beat up the, the hippies and all the others who were out there. And when they thought that they were going back there and do all the things they did and they wasn't going to be challenged. And we always said that they had a kind of, they meant well, it meant well in what they was going to do, but they had a privileged mentality. They thought that the pigs wouldn't beat them up, but they did. Free to New York 21 and all political prisoners. There, we were talking about political prisoners then, and you talk about Black Panther Party political prisoners today. Party members who have been locked up ever since then are locked up today. The New York 21 were charged with over 137 crime, uh, counts, charges. All of them dismissed. All of them dismissed within four hours of deliberation in the courtroom. All charges dismissed. Tupac Shakur's mom was a member of the New York 21. This is called a fascist court tried New York Panthers, 21. We call the judge a blood-sucking vulture, the true symbol of fascism. This is Fred Hampton, who was the charismatic leader of the Black Panther Party. He was 21 years old. The raised in the black is a young brother named Mark Clark, who was in charge of the Southern California chapter of, El chapter, Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. They both were murdered. Police, how did it go down? It came from the White House. There's documents to show that the FBI went up and discussed the whole issue with Richard Nixon to put it in to put it in motion. It went down to the Attorney General of the State of Illinois, to the local police, 
to where they put this whole plan in action? Would an informant, again, an informant, a young man who stole a car, took it across state lines, had a federal case, they made a deal with him to infiltrate the Black Panther Party. He did that. He worked his way up into the security. He was the one who gave them the whole layout of the house and everything. They came in early morning. They knocked on the door. Mark Clark came to the door, asked who it is. They shot through the door. He was immediately killed, shot in the heart. They began to shoot into the house all around at, at waist level. They kicked the door in. They went into the house. Fred Hampton's to-be wife was in there, pregnant with her son, Fred Hampton Jr. Young man named Doc, spleen was shot out. He had sisters in there who were brutalized. Fred Hampton was drugged in the bed in the back room. They went into the back room and said he's still breathing, and they shot him again and said, now he's good and dead. You can murder a revolutionary, but you can't murder a revolution. That's what Fred Hampton used to say. These are comrades who on here uh, salute to those comrades who were murdered in Chicago. You have more Panthers and shootouts with the police and murdered in Chicago than any other chapter outside of L.A. and Seattle. Cautious surviving is criminal. Event in two black men's lives, dramatized why. Prison camps USA, the unknown slaves. It's called, today it's called the prison industrial complex. The prison industrial complex. What is it doing? What is it? What's happening with that? They're doing a lot of outsourcing to private institutions, private companies. Now you get corporate America into the, the, uh, the prison business. So when you get corporate America into the prison business, that means that you got to make a profit. So if you're in the business of making a profit, you got to have a product to sell, to make a profit. So what is the product that you have that to sell? Or what is the product that you need to make the profit? The product is human beings who are locked up, who may not never get out of prison when they should get out, because if you don't have, if you ain't got enough, if you have to have 50% full of, if a prison needs to be 50% full for you to make a profit, then you're going to make sure that you're going to have 50% of the people locked up in that prison so that you can make a profit. So that means that, that there may be people that need to get out. They should be out. They did their time. But they can't get out because the fact that they're going to find somewhere to keep you in there until they can get somebody else to take your place. It's about making money. Boycott letters. This was in response to uh, our, uh, the, the farm workers who were marching from the valley, protesting to the state capitol, and they were protesting the chemicals that were being used on the lettuce in the, in the fields because the fact that it was causing problems with the fetuses of the women and it was, being to it was toxic and causing cancers and all these other things that they had been well documented. And so they came, were marching up the street or where our headquarters were, and we, had, we heard them. And we, I went out along with other party members to see what was up. And Cesar Chavez, the leader of the United Farm Workers, was marching with them. And they said they were hungry, and they explained their, what they were, where they were going. We got permission to take them down to our school, and we fed them. We marched with them 
for 20, 30 blocks, and we fed broke bread with them for about a, uh, for lunch, and they continued on their march. So this illustration came from that. As you see, in the early days, we used to run for Bobby Seale for mayor of Oakland. We helped get the first black mayor elected to Oakland, California. Prior to that, there had never been any African Americans elected as mayor to Oakland, California. We were able to register more people to vote in Oakland, California and Alameda County than ever been registered in the history of registration in Alameda County. This was just a takeoff of Hugh Newton and Elders Cleaver. This is a symbolic front page. Again, political prisoners of U.S. fascism. That was when they were both incarcerated at different times. This is the time when Hugh Newton and Bobby Seale was on, on trial in New Haven, and they were trying to lecture him in a lecture chair. So I did this, I took this illustration, I created this illustration like this one to bring that point home. Hugh Newton didn't like it because he said it looked too real. But Bobby Seale said he liked it because he thought it saved his life. In Vietnam, the Vietnamese say if the enemy refuses to get out, annihilate him. And that's what they would do. In Iraq, the Iraqis say if the enemy refuses to get out, annihilate him. Same thing. Babylon. During this period, it was Babylon was the biblical word that was coined, used by Elder Cleaver to, to define what the U.S. was about during that period. As you see, you got this pig, got his money glasses on, he got hanging in his hand, he got money in his mouth, he got flies around him, he's drooling at the mouth, he got a blood sucking vulture on the end of his gun, he's ready for overkill, he got the lynch rope in his hand, and he's standing in the middle of the Pentagon. And you had all these different things and names on the east side were things that were going on during that period. In New Haven, Connecticut, Bobby Seale and Erica Huggins were on trial. There were thousands and thousands of students from Yale and all these other institutions who came out and supported them. You had in Kent State, you had white students who were shot and murdered for protesting on the campus against the war in Vietnam. In Augusta, Georgia, in Jackson, Mississippi, and on other campuses, there were shootouts and battles with black students on those campuses who were shot and killed. Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Palestine, all these things and many more were going on during this period. U.S. imperialists, and all those little imperialists. This is U.S. nursing all those little baby piglets. All of these countries were involved in colonization of other people in the world at some point in time. If they went directly, they were indirectly involved in it. We want decent housing fit for the shelter of human beings. That was one of the points of the 10-point platform of the Black Panther Party. Pig want pigs want Panthers cool. Reagan attacks Elders Cleaver. Speaking as the racist governor of, the, of California, I don't think Elders Cleaver should teach at UC. University of California wanted Elders Cleaver to be a, a, a teach there. But the governor opposed it, Ronald Reagan. Opposed it. Ron Reagan is the same governor who was holding the press conference when we went to Sacramento in the early days when they were trying to pass the gun laws 
because the Black Panther Party knew the gun laws better than they did when it was put, patrolling the communities. So they got a local assemblyman to pass the work on passing these gun laws, and he was there on the on the on the on the grounds of the state capitol, about ten feet away from us when we came that day. He eventually became the president of the United States. Here again is one when we got word in regards to the attacks that were going to take place against the Black Panther Party. And we had Vietnam, ex-Vietnam veterans in our organization who helped us put together a defense mechanism against that. You see, because what happened when I showed you the one about Fred Hampton, prior to that they had went to Seattle, the FBI, the government, and they kept calling our office in Seattle as a black agent. He kept calling, and the Panthers said, we ain't going to talk to him. But he kept calling and said, well, let's go see what he's talking about. They went and they talked to him, and he told them that they had this plan to massacre the Panthers. But when I, we don't know if that were, he was sincere or was he doing it for psychological reasons. But in any event, it was then thereafter that they went to the local authorities there in Seattle to hope, get them involved in the plan, and they refused to go along with it. That's why they went to Chicago, where Fred Hampton was murdered. Four days later, they went to L.A., and there was a five- or six-hour shootout in Los Angeles, California. The only reason why Panthers weren't killed in Los Angeles is because we had ex-Vietnam veterans had already prepared. They had dug ditches inside the office. So when the bullets was coming back and forth, they were under the ground in these trenches, saved their lives. And the community came out. Angela Davis was one of those organizers out there to bring out the community during that, during that battle. So the, all of the needs, so these reflect that during that particular time. We would not hesitate to either kill or die for our freedom. I know one thing, them pigs had better stay from my door trying to kick it in, talking about they don't need no search warrant. George Jackson lived. George Jackson was a black man who went to, went to prison as a common criminal. But when he went in, he became, got politicized. And he asked to, by, he was, he requested from Hugh Newton to be organized in the prisons. He did that. And he was highly respected. And he was murdered in San Quentin. Black people can destroy the machinery that enslaves the world. America cannot stand to fight every black country in the world and fight a civil war at the same time. It is militarily impossible to do both of these things at once. The students focus their rebellions on the campuses. And the working class focuses its rebellions on the factories and picket lines. But the lumpen finds itself in a peculiar position of being unable to find a job and therefore is unable to attend the university. The lumpen has no choice but to manifest its rebellion in the university of the street. What is the lumpen? The lumpen is the brother and sister as we defined it. It just can't get no job. Don't want no job now because they can't get none. Unemployed, just don't care. Just don't, don't care. 
ready to go to battle. That was the leper. For every pork shop, there's a frying pan. Farmers, black people look at each other through prison bars. Where is our freedom? The brothers in maximum security, the families and loved ones are in minimum security. We had a little politics here with the three buttons. This George Jackson is the top when he was the brother who was murdered in San Quentin. But before he was murdered in San Quentin, he was in Soledad prison, another prison. And these three brothers, other two brothers with him, were charged with the murder of a guard. Eventually that charge was dismissed. The other two brothers eventually got out of prison, but George wasn't fortunate enough to make it out. This is a sister who used to live in the back of our office, and she used to love the party. And so she used to get the paper every day. And it says, mm, it seems to me that it's cheaper for the U.S. government to starve poor people than to feed us. And I took these clippings that I got from the daily newspaper, and I put on the back of the paper there. It says, U.S. government sells surplus wheat to Russia. Billions of dollars worth of food is dumped into the ocean each year by the U.S. government. That was real. That was true. Rather than feed the hunger, they throw it away. Throw it into the ocean. This one called SAFE, Seniors Against a Fearful Environment. We had a seniors program. We used to take them shopping. We used to have fashion. They used to do fashion shows. They used to come together at our, our community center called, uh, called the uh, Oakland Community School. And in the evenings, it was, it was the uh, learning center. And it says, why should Oakland spend $54,000 on a helicopter when we need funds for seniors against a fearful environment? And what we're saying there, I got five, I got five more minutes, so I will go through them after this, and then perhaps uh, I'll just, maybe they can, if there's questions, they can continue to show the slides, but I won't be able to give you any insight into them. Well, so what happened? You say, why can you use this helicopter? You pay $54,000 for this helicopter. When you can use that same money to give to this young man or young lady to escort these seniors to cast their checks if you really wanted to stop crime. If you're really concerned about stopping crime, then you would invest in the community, set a, a surveillance in the community. Chairman Bobby said for mayor, huh? vote for survival. It's, again, I won't go through them again. When will it rain? When it's very little. Sh when will it rain? We have when it rains, we have very little shelter. When we're hungry, we have not enough food. But when we come together for our survival, we will have freedom. Amen. 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 Listen to them big pigs banging on my door, asking me for some rent money. They should be paying my rent. Unfortunately, that's, I like to read that one, but it's long and our time is almost up. So give me a wave in the hand, and I'll stop when you ask me to, please. This was the Olympics when 1968, when Tommy Smith and John Carlos and went to the Olympics to get a back power sign. But there was others who went who just didn't do anything. They just stood there. Some of them took their shoes off to protest. Others never uh, stood up and raised their hand when the national anthem was played. So this was a takeoff from their part of the protest. The Olympics, he runs the race. He runs, he comes to the finish line. He stands on the podium. He's still standing the point. He comes back home with his hands raised. And when it's over, a nigger is a nigger is a nigger. South Africa. I took these pictures from the House of Bondage to show the conditions and situation and how it ignite, how the spark lit the period fire. And when the car fire lights, 
It says repression breeds resistance. That's again when we said the divestment program was going on in relationship to South Africa. It says the city of Oakland is investing $16.1 million in racist South Africa. This was all over the United States. I've been forced to work all my life picking cotton, digging ditches, washing dishes, scrubbing other people's floors. All this and more I was forced to do for slave wages. But those days are long gone. Now I demand equality, justice, and peace. Have I got another minute or should I stop? I don't know. (laughs) Just wait until I get a little bigger so that I can wear my daddy's hat and shoot my daddy's gun. We always keep close watch on the fascist movement so that they will have a miserable day. Nightmare, nightmare, we'll force you away never to let you come back to haunt us another day. When I cast my vote to impeach Nixon, it won't be because of Watergate alone. We've been lied to, murdered, jailed, brutalized, unemployed, neglected as infants, young adults, and senior citizens, denied adequate medical care and attention, food, clothing, and shelter, forced to fight wars of aggression, support wars against liberation. Hypertension, number one black killer. Solidarity. For the young, the old, the poor, and the black, living in America is brutal. Young people in that picture there were searched when they went to the trial of Panthers who were incarcerated called San Quentin Six. Young sister in the community was abused and brutalized. Hallelujah. Survival program. Unemployed. That's the picture of unemployed. This was a public housing uh, thing that I did. I can't read it because of time. I just go through it quickly. Revolution in our lifetime. We black people ain't begging no more. We had a free free food program. Used to give 10,000 bags of groceries at a time. All across the country. Filled to the back. Filled to the brim. I have stood by too long while the racist pigs brutalize and murder my people. The blood of the pigs must flow in the street. In God we trust. Exploitation, capitalism, the money is in God we trust. There's a saying that my partner was saying is it's called the three M's. Man made money, money drove man mad. Huh? All of it coming out the rear end? <laughs> Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, California, Chicago, New York, America. Freedom is a constant struggle. U.S. imperialism, when, Nixon, when Nick, Tricky Dick Nixon uh, coined the word black capitalism. And we showed that if imperialism falls, black capitalism is a weed, it's going to fall too. That was happy birthday, Huey. This is it. We want an end to the robbery by the capitalists of our black community. This one deals with uh, the holiday Christmas. We didn't have nothing against holiday Christmas. We gave, if people wanted Christmas trees, we gave them to them. But it was about the exploitation of the holiday itself in America. When they, pop, pop, when you have poor people thinking they got to go out and buy these gifts and stuff for their families, put all this stress on them, that's exploitation. That's 
Now just wait until I get a little bit. I think I might have said that one already. Okay. Who can stop it? Maybe I can just click them and stop it. Do whatever. Emery's very kindly uh, agreed to take some questions about his work and, um, and about the, the different things that he's done, both as an artist and as a political activist, a member of the Black Panther Party, and as their Minister of, of Culture, as you know. So uh, who would like to, like to begin? Can I please ask you, uh, in the uh, interests of keeping things moving, to try and make your comments into questions and to try and make those questions pithy rather than making speeches uh, from the floor. I think that way things move better. Uh, would you like to start? This gentleman here. I think there's supposed to be a microphone. Hi. Um, just want to ask you, as an artist, how intense or how difficult was it um, during that climate of that time to produce the work that you did? Uh, well, it, w it was intense because we were being shot at. And we <laughs> it was but, you know, and, it, and we knew that there was the uh, government was out to, uh, to, uh, to try to silence us because it, it was not so much about the... Uh, the art itself, it was about the art, but also the fact of what we were doing. We was exposing the government for what it should have been doing. Because we had a breakfast program, a free breakfast program, we had for children, where we had free good food giveaways for those who needed it, and we were showing that this is what the government should have been doing. See? But it was intense, but it was fun. And I mean, we, we were young. We were from the ages of 15 to 22, 23 years of age. Bobby Seale was 28 and was killed sitting at the old man. Over there, with the red pen in their hand. Thanks. Hi. Um, a big question today is uh, the situation in America today. Uh, obviously, a lot, of, a lot has changed, but some hasn't. So uh, what's your analysis of the situation today in terms of racism and in terms of exploitation or capitalism that you're also talking about? Much as things, much as things change, they still stay the same. You still got the issues that you got to deal with. Are you still drawing your pictures now? Because I've noticed a lot of your pictures back from the 60s and the 70s, they're relevant to today and they're quite prophetic. Um, prophetic? Yeah, um, and they seem to sort of, they're telling history, the history from that time, but they are very relevant to today. Uh, yes, I, I still do artwork. I believe I have, might have some on the end of this while I'm asking questions, might get to them that deals with the prison industrial complex, deal with HIV, AIDS, and uh, health, all those issues, yeah. 
just while I have the microphone, and I know we're not supposed to say things, but I grew up in East San Jose where Cesar Chavez grew up, um, yeah. and uh, so it was called Sal Si Puedes, which means in English, get out if you can. And uh, in my high school, the, uh, black, uh, the president of the Black Student Union was a Panther. I went to Black Panther meetings. I got my first uh, little red book from a Black Panther meeting. And I just want to say thank you for coming. That a lot of when I tell my stories to people here, I think they think I'm exaggerating, but I mean you sort of reinforced a lot of what the way I remember it. Thank you. Uh, right at the back there, and then over here. Hi. Um, now that Obama has become president, how do you think he will change um, the situation, not only for black people, but for other ethnic minorities in America? Well, he's an inspiration at this point. It depends on what happens. You know, he, he's dealing with a, he's coming into a toxic situation. You know what I mean? And, uh, and it's very, it's a very, it's, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a personal achievement. At the same time, it's a historical achievement as it relates to the African-American struggle and oppressed people's struggle in the country for equality. And it, But at the same time, uh, you have to understand that uh, just because McCain lost and the public lost, they, they, they ain't disappeared. So you still got those battles that go on. So it depends on what happens in the process and how much support he gets for his agenda from those newly elected officials of the Democratic Party. So it's a process. I mean, I mean, I could kiss you and tell you that this is going to happen, that going to happen, but uh, the secret is in what takes place. I mean, we can all sit in a superb circle and suppose, but the secret sits in the middle and knows. Young, do young African Americans today appreciate your work, or do you find it's more appreciated overseas? by people who haven't experienced the brutality. Do young African-Americans today appreciate your work, or is it more appreciated overseas, where amongst people who haven't really experienced that brutality and that culture? Oh, no, it's been both. I've had a lot of, uh, lot of youngsters from the hip-hop community uh, and uh, younger generations always ask me to come and do slide presentations and to participate in their venues. Universities and students at the universities are always asking me to participate in their venues. So it's, it's, uh, it's all over. It's everywhere. Yes. Hello. Hi. I'm Hello. over here. I'm the lady that said carry on. Okay. Because let's put it this way. We don't get a chance to see someone like you. I just want to say a personal thank you because I was a child in the 70s. I was actually 15. I didn't realize that you were all so young. And I'd just like to say thanks for what you did, the fight you went through. Because to be perfectly honest, anyone who's about 40, 50 in this audience, it meant a lot. It changed a lot of our lives. And even though it's not carried on today as much as it could have done, thank you. Hi, um, I just wanted to ask and a bit of your analysis on that. I find there's a real absence in our modern day of kind of committed, organized political organization, specifically from the young today. And I was just wondering what you think has kind of changed. I mean, you're saying you guys were so young. 
um, what has changed, the apathy that is so prevalent. What has changed since then? Yeah. Well, you've had crack cocaine introduced in the community. You had cutbacks on social assistance for those who needed it. You had, uh, you got the black on black violence. You see what I'm saying? You got uh, those, uh, they have trickled into the middle class who now have an interest and don't want to deal with these other things because they're dealing with their survival of these homes and the property that they got. So they kind of manipulate us into a, a situation that we have to, have to work ourselves out. You got HIV AIDS that you're dealing with. You got all these health issues. You got, un, you got people who are millions and millions of people who are uninsured, can't get, get medical care. You see what I'm saying? So you got all these dynamics that you're dealing with that didn't exist then. You got a whole nother generation now of young people who are 15, 15, 20 years old, multimillionaires. You know what I mean? Now the ones on the front of the magazines or in the magazines uh, advertising for the, the, uh, the Maseratis and the, the big bling bling and all that. You see? So you got a whole other dynamics that you're dealing with today that didn't exist then. That's if we have some of the obstacles to overcome, other ones than that. Now there's someone on the... Oh, okay, great. You've got it. Um, bring greetings, first of all, from Dr. Mark Alexander and from Dr. Tommy Smith, who uh, we were fortunate enough to have in Camden uh, to launch our Black History season um, a few weeks back. Um, but my question is in relation to the Black Panthers and the situation today. Um, we know uh, from reading that the uh, attempts by the government to basically undermine the organization and to derail it um, to some degree were successful. And I'd be interested to hear your views on some of those uh, former Black Panther members like Asata Secure who had to run off Oh, yeah, to well, Asata Secure was... Uh was a young lady who was in a car with some Panthers, and they had a shootout on the uh, turnpike, and she just happened to be in the car, and the person named Jade, uh, who, uh, one of the Panthers named Zade, was murdered, and uh, uh, and the police was killed, and she was shot because she had her hands up, and she was shot by, I don't know how many times, put in prison, making sure a long story short, uh, she was she was liberated from prison went to Cuba, and that's where she is today. But what they did recently, they had this, new, this uh, representative from Newark, New Jersey, who, who introduced a bill to classify her as a terrorist. And they did, they classified her as a terrorist. But those who went along with that, particularly in the Black Congress, Congressional Congress there, didn't know that Asada Shakur and Joanne Chesmar was the same person. Because when it was introduced, they used the name Joanne Chesmar. You see? So what they did is they voted for the, for the bill to reclassify her as a terrorist. So not only that, you have Panthers who are, right now, who are being charged 40 years later with a killing of a policeman in San Francisco that they had nothing to do with. These Panthers were in New Orleans and they were tortured. Tortured. I mean, they took the police, they took the federal marshals, they took the uh, San Francisco Police Department, and they took the L.A. Police Department. They went down to New Orleans. They questioned them, put them in the room, 
stripped them down in clothes, chained them to the chairs, and they started asking them questions. And they couldn't answer the questions. They started, they used cattle prods. They put, they put cattle prods up the anus. They put cattle prods on their testicles. They put them all on their back. They put hoods on their head. They put hot sheets over them. They beat them with billy clubs. They did all that. And they finally said, okay, I will, I will say whatever you want me to say. He said, don't worry about it. We got the statement right here we want you to sign. They signed the statement. They were let out of their custody into an, a, another custody. It was shown that they had been tortured. Later on, they tried to bring the charges up again in San Francisco. It was thrown out because it was under torture. It was also thrown out in L.A. when they tried to bring up the case again, also under torture. But the, the uh, federal marshals who were in charge then have now been raised up to uh, another level. And now they come back knocking on their doors the, 40 years later, wanting to recharge, want to talk to them. They say, we're not going to talk to you. You know what you did to us. And they refuse to talk to them. So they, it takes little or nothing to go to a grand jury to get somebody charged with a crime. So when they had to go in front of the Jan, Jan, grand jury, they refused to talk to the grand jury because of the fact of what they did to them. So they stayed in jail for almost six months. The trial is going on now. They claim that they got all this new evidence. The lawyers keep asking for the new evidence, but they don't have anything. It's about vindictiveness. It's about vindictiveness. It's just like Haiti. They don't never like a successful slave rebellion or a slave revolt. The Haitians were successful against Napoleon, and they ain't going to never forget that. The Black Panther Party was like slave revolts in America. They ain't going to never forget that. Um, I, have, I have two questions. I hope that's all right. Um, the first question is, I'm just wondering... What would you what would you say to us as in um, what would you want us to do at the moment in relation to these sort of um, issues such as racism not just in America but in the UK? That's my first question. Um, and I also just wondered what at the very beginning of when you started um, creating your artwork, I wonder what inspired you um, because I think Professor Gilroy was saying at the beginning that he couldn't find any artists who were really very similar to you. And, you know, I was just wondering what inspired you to create art of that sort of style. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the first to the first part of your question, it would be you should see and feel you have to make decide on what you want to do and how you feel that you can make a contribution to society and what and overcoming these obstacles that we have to deal with. The second part is the style of, and the work that I did uh, was a reflection of the politics. This art would never existed without the Black Panther Party. The styles were styles that I used to use, try to use, when I was taking up commercial art. But they told me they, they weren't commercial. But I always remembered and kept those styles. And uh, when I got into the Black Panther Party, I was able to improve on them and use them because I, I didn't have all these restrictions. And when you get into commercial art, you got restrictions. You see, but in the Black Panther Party, I had that freedom to be creative in the styles in the way I wanted to. But I also, we, were, we didn't have a lot of, we had a lot of limitations as relate to materials. So therefore, my style also evolved out of the materials that we had available to us to use. 
Okay, now there are about four people who um, want to come in, or five actually now, more hands going up all the time. I think given that we have to finish by eight, um, that what I'll try to do is to take three or four um, questions at one go and then let Emery answer whatever he is able to answer. It's more efficient than going to and fro. Uh, and so I'd ask those of you who are going to speak now, first here, then over there, and then on this side of the room, you and then a couple on this side of the room, the gentleman there and the gentleman at the back with a hand up, and then, and then Emery will reply to that. So if you would please pass the microphone as rapidly between speakers as possible, that would be great. I'd be, we'd all be grateful for that, this gentleman here. Yes, um, thanks for that inspiring delivery. My, my problem is that you mentioned something called the in prison industrial complex. If you could um, explain a little more in terms of what a deliberate part of American fascism or was it just uh, a new construct to destroy the black community within the United States? Okay. And now, the whole that thought, Emery. Thank you. Um, as a college student from Chicago, um, I don't see art, political art, as um, frequent as maybe in the past. And I was wondering what you think the current role of art is in politics and in particular the American struggle for equality. Okay, thank you. And now you. Actually, if you stand up and shout. Oh, no, there's another mic there. Okay. Thank you. Less of a question and just um, regarding what we can do um, as uh, to kind of serve the legacy of the Panthers. Um, the Panthers were, you know, racism was more. Um, it was a tool. It was always seen as a tool, a symptom. Um, and that there's so much going on in England um, and around the world to fight for and to serve the legacy of the Black Panthers and to take influence from memory. Um, it was never just a single movement. It was a, a grassroots movement of many people, and there's so much going on. Um, young people are involved in that today um, to get involved in. Thank you. Uh, over there on the wooden, on the wall on that, that side towards the back. And then this gentleman here with the um, newspaper. Uh, greetings, my brother. I just wanted to ask, in terms of the art that, that's depicted and the style that you use, um, do you find that, that younger artists have sort of taken up that style? Because it's a depiction of African faces in a very realistic way. Second question I wanted to ask is you mentioned about the food program, uh, the feeding programs that were developed by the Black Panther Party the care of elderly, um, I presume there were also creches for young children. With that level of organization, is it possible to sort of re revive that level of organization currently across the African-American community? Do you finally? And then you can just pick what you want to pick. You don't have to feel you have to answer these <laughs> extraordinary <laughs> questions. Hi. Um, I'm Sukhan from the Black Panther Commemoration Committee, who, along with uh, LSE and Richard in particular, and the gallery in Urbis and Manchester, which currently Emery's exhibition is taking place until next year, April, have been hosting not only Emery Douglas, but also another brother from the Black Panthers, a, a, a veteran, Billy X, who's outside on the stool. And that's why I've been coming in and out, trying to get Billy to come in and say a few words. But he likes to be behind the scenes. So please, um, if you could, you know, please feel free to uh, engage uh, with Billy outside as well on the stool. And we're selling the Panther, Leg Panther Legacy magazine out there. I'd just like to also convey the fact that uh, we've been... Uh, 
We've had a very hectic schedule this week. Every day we've been hitting different venues. We've gone grassroots on Monday in Brixton um, with a local grassroots organization called the Remember Olive Collective. Linton Kwesi Johnson was in the audience and he contributed to the meeting. Um, we represented Derry, um, I think just a, uh, yesterday or Tuesday evening, um, with Eamon McCann, the veteran civil rights activist, and there was Sinn Féin there and Bernadette, Bernadette Devlin. And we're going to finish off this uh, tour this week uh, representing another community of struggle, that's Ladbroke Grove, Notting Hill, at the Tabernacle on Saturday. So if you're interested, please come along and get a flyer from me. And you know, People may or may not know, but Marcus Garvey passed away in that, in that community. Uh, the Notting Hill Carnival itself was set up by a local black woman, Claudia Jones, who was a Maoist. So it's a very rich community of struggle, and it'll be, um, I think it'll be a great... And, and people who know a little bit about modern youth culture in London will know about MC Bashi, who's a local hero, and he'll be representing and doing a little PA there as well. So it'll be a great night of celebration in, 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 in commemorating the Panther legacy. Okay. Uh, just last question. I was wondering um, just to what extent the, uh, the Black Party, the Black Panther Party is, is still in existence today, and... Um, if there's any credence to the idea that with the kind of the dissipation of the party that a lot of the members actually ended up being um, uh, gang, leading gangs in, in Oakland and in Los Angeles. Okay. Well, um, is that some more? Well, I'm, I'll take the last one first. <laughs> 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 um, uh, well, you said what the Black Panther Party is in the gangs. Yeah, Black Panther Party had many members who were part of the gangs uh, in, during that day. They came out of the gangs into the Black Panther Party, particularly in Los Angeles uh, during that time. In Chicago, we used to work with the gangs. We used to work in the gangs then. But in Chicago, we have such respect with the gangs that we were the only organization allowed to go in those housing projects and do social outreach and, you know, do uh, food programs, do health, uh, medical, preventative medical care, all those things because of the relationship that they had with us. They understand the oppression, but they just, there's chaos going on with them at the same time. Uh, the Bloods, the Crips, when they initially started off, they started as a social organization that turned into a gang. Because when they were early on, they came by our office one, one day when they were on their way back to Chicago, to uh, LA. And they were younger than we were at the time. And the ones who came by said they respected the party and wanted to come by. But at the same time, they wanted us to join with them. You see, we, you know, our politics was to the point where we understood that we weren't about that at that particular time. We seen a hard edge because they wanted to join us because their colors was blue and ours was blue. So they wanted us to join with them. But at the same time, we've had uh, a great relationship. We had Panthers in L.A. who have negotiated with the Bloods and the Crips and those different sects and, as a relationship to truce in relationship to the killing that's going on and all those things. So we have had, and still to this day, you still have, they have give props and respect to the Black Panther Party. There's a, you have to need the bastards of the party. It's a, 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 a film that I would encourage, if you want to know about that, is you should see that. It got two, it got one blood and one crip 
that goes on history, goes into the whole history of the gangs in L.A. And they regret the fact that they've been a part of that total devastation. Uh, the brother here was the first one. He talked about the prison industrial complex and how it impacts black and does it still impact blacks the same way today. Am I correct? Uh, yes, it does. I mean, this illustration you see here is these are brothers who have been locked up in Angola prison. This is for brothers in Angola prison. We're called Angola 3. For 37 years, they were incarcerated in isolation because they were accused by a pedophile in prison, pointed out by a pedophile in prison, of killing a guard, which they could not have done. The pedophile was given a, a written, uh, given a, given a, a written uh, by the by the uh, warden and them. He was given a, uh, he was recommended for parole after he did that. But these things have different information has come out regarding that case. That one of the brothers has been out for five years or more. Another one of them, this conviction has just been overturned. Hopefully he'll be out soon. Then you got. One more that we have to deal with. So you see, you're dealing with vindic vindictiveness. And of course, the prisons, industrial complex, that's about poor people. People who are locked out of the system, who go out and commit crimes to survive sometimes. At the same time, it's about racism in America. You see? That's because you, blacks can get a longer time for most crimes than white folks would get. You see, as poor folks would get, a, uh, uh, or poor folks would get a, a more crime than a rich person can get. So you have the class and you have the racism. Well, I hope you'll all join me in expressing our appreciation for Emery's presentation tonight. We're really, really grateful to you.